They are pretty awesome. Okay, we kind of have a dilemma. Mark alluded to it. We're trying to decide what to do with our New England fans today. We thought about we thought about kicking them out, but that wouldn't be very Christian. So we thought about sequestering them, but then we're marginalizing, and that's not very Christian either. So we thought, well, that only leads us one choice. We'll have an early altar call, had come up and pray for them and console them. We could do that. Uh, it's going to be fun. As Mark said, football is part of our culture, and we should enjoy it because our neighbors are. All right, on the back of your bulletin, I just want to bring out um, a couple of things to your attention. There's more. You can read all of it. It's really good stuff. Men's Iron Hour. Let me invite you guys, if, if you're new and you haven't been to an Iron Hour, come on Wednesday morning at 6.30. We have a great time. We eat and we have a great discussion every morning, every Wednesday morning. And then uh, hospitality needs you. We need greeters and ushers. So uh, if you'd like to serve us by helping uh, greet new people and all that, go, uh, go sign up for that and get some information. Okay, uh, I would like to pray for several things turn our heart just a little bit more toward the people that are hurting in our church. I did get an email from Roy Herring. I'd like to remember Roy and Nancy Herring. Uh, they're at MD Anderson in Houston, stage one lung cancer. And he sent me a text this morning. We keep up via text and uh, said that his, he just finished his last round of chemo and he has one week of radiation left. And he's grateful for your prayers because the doctors are very uh, pleasantly surprised and impressed with how well he's responding. And his words are, yay. I just love that. Isn't that good? So con continue to pray for them. I'd like to lift up Phyllis Carnes, Bill Spears' sister. She was rushed to the hospital and had and was bordering on death several times the last few days. I know that some of you have gotten the emails on that. <clears throat> and, uh, She's a little bit away from death right now, but she's still in the hospital, so they've been visiting her. So we should pray for her. And let's not forget Phyllis Labar, one of our own, who fell during December and broke her hip. And so she's trying to recover from that, and that's a real challenge for her. Then we have families that recently, I know we have more than this, but recently we have several families who have, I love these words, Debbie Nelson gave them to me, have temporarily said goodbye to loved ones. Uh, Angela Cummins, I was talking to her yesterday. You may remember her. We were praying for her husband with stage 4 colon cancer, and he died January 5th. And so she and Marley are uh, um, learning what it means, the new normal. Uh, her house just finally emptied out of all the friends and relatives that are there. And so you, if you've been there, you know what that means. The loneliness sets in. So I told her I've been waiting to come see them until the loneliness sets in when all the friends and family are gone. And she said, it's time. <laughs> at the memorial service I shared that uh, I had Marley come up on stage with me the last one of the last conversations we had he asked me what was going to happen to his nine-year-old daughter and I said oh, a couple weeks after you die uh, Marley and I are going to go out for a coke and cry together and talk about you and how good the Lord is so I shared that and uh, with Marley and she was with me up in front of the memorial service so her friends in school have been asking her have you gone for your coke yet <laughs> and we have uh, let's not forget Lauren Fisher um, keeping up with her as well. And uh, she's, it's probably been four or five months, and she's learning what it means to be temporarily separated from someone she loves. And then uh, the Nelson family, Debbie Nelson's brother died unexpectedly recently, and so they're grieving that loss as well. I know there's probably more of you, and I apologize. These are just the ones I'm aware of. So let's stop and pray for these families.
Father, we do lift up these families. First of all, we rejoice that um, in your goodness and in your uh, wisdom, the chemo and the radiation is working with Roy. Thank you that they caught that early. And uh, thank you for the rejoicing that is occurring in his heart. And Lord, I pray for uh, Phyllis Carnes. I pray that you would be with her, Lord, as she uh, is struggling to stay alive and the doctors are struggling to help her in that. Give them wisdom, Father, and I pray that you would restore her to health. And the same with Phyllis Labar. Lord, I'm, I'm sure she's struggling to, uh, after her, her hip surgery, guide her and heal her through that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those who have temporarily said goodbye to loved ones, Cummings, the Fishers, the Nelsons, and others that I aren't aware of, I'm not aware of. I pray that you would be with them in this moment of grief and this time and help them, Lord, what it means to... Uh, honestly learn to live without someone they've been with for so long and to learn how to trust you even more than they have in the past thank you for the work that you're doing in our congregation help us to be lord uh, help us to be a church that cares about people and father for those that we don't know what's going on that are struggling with with serious things i pray that you would be very real to them during this time comfort them heal them lord uh, be their god thanks for being a god that we trust that we can come to in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, as Mark said, we're in the middle of a series on the festivals, Jewish festivals. We're not looking at all of them. We're looking at several of the significant ones that appear in the New Testament. There are others that don't appear, but these do. And Jesus interacted with them in particular ways. Our goal in this, festival, in this series is to show you how Jesus fulfills and redefines these Jewish festivals so we can grasp the true meaning in our world today. So when you go back into the Old Testament, some of you are used to this kind of this timeline, God does many things back here. Uh, this is the way I explain it. He, he gives us a real tangible reality. We can touch the walls of the temple. We can smell the animals as they're being sacrificed, hear the bleeding of the sheep, all of that. Then he gives us all these festivals, but all of these things, do, they do something for us. They point the direction. They point us toward the coming Messiah, Jesus. Everyone is there by design, not by accident. Everything God does when he intervenes within culture, whether he's speaking or acting, is designed to bring about redemption, to bring about healing or to repair something that's broken. So every verse in Scripture is showing how our God is redemptive. So all these festivals point us toward a greater reality than themselves. Okay, Ours, Our festivals and holidays don't do that. We celebrate July 4th, don't we? And that, that reminds us and helps us appreciate our freedom, but they don't necessarily point us toward something all the Jewish festivals did. So when Christ comes... He actually fulfills all of the intent of those festivals. We've looked at several. And so he fulfills them, but that's not the end in itself either because that propels us forward into a reality, a spiritual reality, where all these festivals are now lived out in our world right here. Most of you don't realize that, but much of what we do has been shaped by those Jewish festivals and the things that we do. And so we're trying to help you capture a glimpse of that and to see it. Today, we're looking at the Festival of Tabernacles, or booths. The Jewish festivals that we are looking at in this series are the, what we call the Torah festivals. The Torah is the Mosaic Law. These are the festivals required by the Mosaic Law. Three of them are what we call pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Booths, and Pentecost. They're, pa they're pilgrimage because 
They're called that because the nation was required to gather three times a year. The men were, and they usually brought their families, to celebrate these three festivals. Hopefully by the time we're done, you'll get the sense that, that God aligned the calendar, the Jewish calendar, so that the people were constantly stopping and remembering what God had done and looking forward to what God was going to do, both in the short term and in the long term with the coming Messiah. We'll see some of that today. We also looked at the Day of Atonement. We're, um, we are going to look at a holy day. It's not really a festival per se. It's Sabbath. And what does that do? With, how do we interact with Sabbath? Uh, New Testament talks about that a lot. And then we looked at one festival that came about in around one, uh, 160, 163 B.C. And during what we call the Second Temple Period called Hanukkah. Um, this coming year, it'll start on July, uh, December 24th, excuse me. And uh, that celebrates the red rededication, the restoration of the temple. We looked at that one already. That was the first one we looked at. Now, these festivals, let me remind you, they serve very important roles in the history of Israel, the nation of Israel. They provided opportunities for the nation to stop and celebrate and remember what God has done. And so we tried to do that throughout the year. We just, we just had a great time celebrating Christmas, didn't we? Um, Advent, Emmanuel, God with us. He did not forget us. He came back for us. They also, these festivals, provided a sense of identity and common value. So they all had the same language, much like we have as Americans with July 4th and some of our other holidays. They give us a sense of commonality, common identity. These festivals provided for a sense of national aspirations. They provided pictures of hope to the nation, of what God has done, his faithfulness. Remember, in the ancient Near East, every nation served gods. We serve the one true living God. And so the festivals in Judaism were designed to remind them and help them, help them express that hope that we do serve the one true living God. I believe that. Well, fourthly, they provided opportunities to discuss issues and make national resolutions. They didn't have internet and all that, so the nation would come together from around the world and they would talk about important things. So today we're going to take a look at the Festival of Tabernacles, all known as the Festival of Booths. This, the language of this festival is scattered all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to look at two passages in particular, one in Leviticus and one in Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Leviticus 23. Now, the book of Leviticus, if you've read it, uh, it's filled with all kinds of language on holiness, language of sin, what to avoid, rituals, uh, priesthood, how to sacrifice, all of that. I mean, it doesn't take you very long, just a chapter, to get buried in the deep mire of mud and stuff like that. But they serve a very important role because in Leviticus, God is teaching his people what it means to have, live holy lives. He wanted them to live holy lives, so he gave them laws. He gave them instructions regarding holiness in life and worship. Now, most of us don't really have a good grasp of what holiness is about. We really don't. We tend to think of it almost from a guilt perspective, as I've talked to people, about not sinning and all that. But, but holiness is more foundational than that. Holiness at its very core is that God has made you different. He has separated you. Why? To reflect his glory to the world around you. That's why. And so Leviticus is talking about all of the rules and the laws and the rituals that made Israel different than the world around them. So when they come out of Egypt, they're very much like the surrounding nations. So they could be Canaanites. They look just like them. 
They had similar practices, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and so God gave them a command. One command made them look different than the, than the walls, the nations around them. Two commands, they look a little more different. Three commands, they look a little more different. Well, there's 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. Those commands, most of them, we, we cannot obey them today. In fact, they don't really make sense in our world. That's because we didn't live in the ancient Near East where they lived. And uh, so he was, these commands were designed to help them separate their practices and their rituals and beliefs from the surrounding nations. Or as he said at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, if you obey my commands fully, several things will happen. But one of them is I will make you a holy nation. I will make you a nation different than the other nations, not for your benefit, for their benefit. So here's God. He creates a kaleidoscope of nations, if I can use an old metaphor, and he chooses one to reach the rest. He chooses Israel to reach the rest. That's what Genesis 12 is all about. So the gospel message then in Galatians, God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham that in him all the nations would be blessed. That is the core of the gospel, Galatians 3.8. So he did that by making them holy by making them distinctly different than all the nations around. And that was designed to get the nations to draw forward. So when we read the great prayers and the great praises all through the Old Testament, one of the things we find often embedded in there is that the foreigners would come, and they would come to know the Lord. This is what Leviticus is all about. What are these rules and laws that are going to make you different than the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Hittites, all of that sort of thing? So when we read it, we're stuck in quicksand. I mean, it's almost like being in the mud and the mire. Wow, what do we do with it? There's all kinds of little things buried in there that, would, that if we pay attention, really help us grasp it. For instance, just a small example, the sacrifice of Thanksgiving. You bring a bull. On the, you know, maybe, maybe God's blessed one of you with a child or a grandchild, and so you bring a bull down to the priest, and you want to offer it as a, as a Thanksgiving offering, and so you slit its throat. Uh, you offer the guts to God. You offer a steak to the priest, and you have to eat the whole thing before dinner before the evening is over. How are you going to do that? There's only one way. Invite all of your friends. That's the only way. That's what makes it Thanksgiving. It makes it a big community event where we laugh together, we party together over what God has done. So a careful reading of Leviticus, it produces lots of fruit. But in the middle of it right now, it's a, it's a myriad of laws and rituals, but it's designed, let's not forget, it's designed to help the nation form an identity of belief in the one true God and shows that they are different than the surrounding nations. Right smack in the middle of this in Leviticus 23 is the uh, discussion on the festival of tabernacles. Leviticus 23, verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, now you notice the Lord is all caps. Whenever in your Old Testament, the Lord is all caps in your English Bible. That's the name of God, Yahweh. This is the one true living God. So this one true living God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no work. Oh, get a day off from work. I like that. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a closing special assembly. Do no regular work. Take the day off. Now, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings required for each day. 
These sacrifices are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbaths and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the freewill offerings you, have, uh, you give to the Lord. So they have this attitude of wanting to give. That's why when we do offerings, we call it offerings, we, we ask you to stop. Don't just put money in the basket. Be grateful to the Lord for what he has done that's made it possible for you to put money in the basket. To cultivate an attitude of gratitude, of thanksgiving. So, beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is a, sa- a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, palms, willows, other leafy trees. Rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Now, it doesn't say this, but this is probably akin to the Palm Sunday where we wave the palms. They're, they're thanking the Lord. This is, a, this is a party. They're saying, yes, God, thank you for all that you've done. You've blessed us. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Well, he really is giving them the details and he's repeating it. This is important. Do it this way. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So right off the bat, we learn the Festival of Tabernacles is to remember the journey through the desert. The 40 years of wandering. That's what it remembers. Okay, then we go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now, Deuteronomy is just before Moses' death. They're on the banks of the river, getting ready to cross into the promised land. And so Moses is about to die. Remember, he can't go into the promised land. So he's giving them his last words. Deuteronomy is very important in the nation of Israel. It's the last words of Moses. He repeats the law, and he says several things. But before his death, he reminds them, and he warns them against further mistakes. You remember the 40-year wandering is a long period of them uh, really not being very happy. They grumble, they complain, they sin, they turn away from the Lord, they rebel, they reject, they refuse to obey. I mean, it's just like us, quite honestly. (laughs) Okay, 40 years in the wilderness... And this is at the very end of that. So he's reminding them about that. He encourages them not to turn away from the Lord. There will be severe consequences. So in the middle of this, in Deuteronomy 16, we have another paragraph, another set of commands related to the Festival of Tabernacles. Chapter 16, verse 13. Celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce. So we're adding a little bit of details that are important. After you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press, be joyful at your festival. You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, bring everybody. It doesn't matter who it is. Make sure everybody gets to be involved in this great celebration. Bring everybody. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord God, your God, will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. All of this language of blessing, he later on says, this is what happens if you stay faithful to the Lord. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift Now listen to this. This is an important principle. 
I would encourage you to, to pay attention. This is the same one we see in the New Testament. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the Lord, the way the Lord your God has blessed you. That's why we say just don't put money in there. Pause and thank the Lord that he's made it possible for you to do that. I don't know if you're greedy. You don't look greedy to me. You look really uh, uh, generous to me. But that's something only you can answer by looking in the mirror. So just take it to heart. Okay, now the festival comes immediately after the harvest of grain and the pressing of wine. I did not grow up in an agrarian society. I grew up in a city on the beach, South Florida. I'm actually a beach bum at heart. I just look like a mountain guy, okay? I, that's what I did. I grew up on the beach. That's my home. I asked Nancy if, never mind, we're not going to go there. So uh, uh, I don't know anything about agrarian societies, but I can just kind of imagine what it would be like. I mean, it seems to me that raising crops is a risky business. You don't know what's going to come and what's going to happen insects and hail and all that kind of stuff i i don't know but when you finish the year and you complete the harvest this is a time of great celebration so this occurs between the harvest when they've pressed and made all the wine and the beginning of the next planting cycle it's right smack in the middle it was probably the most joyous of the three pilgrimage feasts it is a great party that's what it is everybody gathers in jerusalem from all around the world, all the Jewish men and their families. Everybody in Jerusalem moves out. They live in tents to remember what God did during, the, during their 40-year wandering in the desert. And they throw a party and they thank the Lord. So the basic purposes of this festival to remember how God cared for them in the wanderings when they lived in tents. But there's other purposes. To remember the end of the harvest and God's blessing, the bringing of the branches, the fruit, all of that, the dancing, the singing, that laughter. They're to celebrate and say, God, thank you for a successful year for feeding all of us and taking care of us. But they also, it was a time to pray to the Lord for the new autumn rains to come. That was necessary as they began planting again. So Lord, thank you for, uh, for taking care of us. Now bless us this next year as well. It also represented an opportunity to get away from the cares of the world. Because you see, when they left their homesteads, wherever they were around the world, and they came together, that's risky business. What if somebody comes in and steals all their animals or burns all their crops or something like that? They're not there to take care of it. God promised in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy to care for them. He'll say, I'll take care of your homesteads, don't worry. Your crops, your uh, animals, all of them, you just come. And if you can't afford to bring your family, I'll watch over your family as well. So this is a time to get away from the cares of the world, let your hair down just for a week. And just as Passover celebrated the coming out from Egypt, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the journey itself through the desert in which God protected Israelites and caused them to look forward to the promised land. Festivals, it was eight days long with a day of rest and worship on the first and the last day. Now we're going to turn to John. By the time of Jesus, some developments had modifications to this festival had occurred, all of them good. And we're going to talk about two key ones because they relate to the ministry of Jesus. But I want you to remember one thing as we head into this discussion. Festival of Tabernacles is about 40 years of wandering in the desert. Okay? When Jesus steps into the tabernacle, the Festival of Tabernacles, he brings that period to a close. Just like they entered the Promised Land, with Jesus' ministry, they enter the new creation. So what Jesus does is he brings this festival to a close 
and then propels us forward with a whole new way of thinking about the new creation. That's what Jesus is doing. We're no longer in the desert. Okay? All right, in John 7 and 8, first of all, in John 7, verse 2, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave and go up to the festival. In verse 14, it wasn't until halfway through the festival that Jesus did go up to the temple courts and began to teach. So he walks in right in the middle of the eight days. Okay? All right, so we had two, two additions to this festival that are very important, one regarding water and one regarding light. Two very important but wonderful things. Every morning, there was a procession led by the priest and a bunch of Levites who represented the choir singing. They would, they would leave the temple with a golden pitcher, and the whole procession of people Israelites would follow them. They'd walk through the Pool of Siloam together on the other side of Jerusalem. They'd dip the, water, the, pool, the uh, pitcher in the water. They'd go back. They'd be singing and dancing their songs and everything. When they get back into the temple, they would pour the water out. Uh, on the floor of the temple as a, as a libation, as, a, as an offering. It was to symbolize, well, I've not been in the desert, hardly at all. I've certainly never lived there. Uh, but I would imagine water would be hard to come by, right? We have a couple of great stories, Moses striking the rock, Moses, well, he didn't speak to what he's supposed to, so he struck the rock and got in trouble for it, okay? So we have a couple of those examples, but the truth is God provided for him the whole way. So this water ceremony was to remind the people of God's provision. He took care of them in the desert. When they brought the, the golden pitcher back, the golden container, as they were coming into the temple, the priest would, I mean, not, not the priest, the, the musicians would blast the shofar, the large horns, celebrating something incredible, and they would all gather around the altar, and they would start singing what we call the halal psalms, the praise psalms, Remembering what God has done. I'm just going to read you a few of the, a little bit out of these psalms. Psalm 113 to 118. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. They're singing praises to God. Um, psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. Isn't that great? those words great? Psalm 116, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard me, my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm 117, one of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible. It's very short. Uh, it's only two verses. Praise the Lord, all you nations. What was the gospel? He announced the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, that through you I will bless all the nations. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. God cares about this entire world, this entire creation. For great is his name, his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Okay, now I'm going to read Psalm 118, but I want you to say this phrase with me together. It's his love endures forever. Let's say it. His love endures forever. Say it again. His love endures forever. So we're going to have a give and take. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is God. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. Now listen to the very last verse, two verses. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
These are the psalms that they would sing. They would sing. Every day they did this with this water ceremony, symbolizing the goodness of the Lord in dry times because in the desert we're all thirsty. Now, you're familiar with John. Jesus promised water all through here, didn't he? The wedding of Cana, you look at that. Uh, water comes up, appears several times. Now listen what happens right smack in the middle. I mean, at the end of the festival, he comes in the middle. John 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted. He had to overcome the entire crowd. He shouted, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. All through the gospel of John, water becomes symbolic of the Holy Spirit. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So on the last day, I suspect they're pouring out the water, the shofar's blowing, they're singing the praise psalms, and he shouts above everybody. If anybody's really thirsty, let him come to me. You know what he did? He just redefined the Jewish ritual of water and the whole context of cleansing and life. He just redefined it. Same thing he did at the wedding of Cana, his very first miracle. At the wedding of Cana, what did he say? They came up to him and they said, we, we, we ran out of wine. So he says, well, go get the wine jars. And he didn't say that. He said, go get the dish drums. Go get the six stone jars over here that the Jews use for cleansing. Fill those up. Fill up the dish drums. Why would he do that? Why didn't he fill up the wine jars? Why the dish drums? Because he's redefining for them what true cleansing is all about. You see, true cleansing is you need the Spirit. The Spirit does two things. He cleanses the soul and He quenches your thirst. Right? And I love how Jesus says you won't be thirsty again. It's not true. Don't buy it. Because as soon as you taste it, you want more, don't you? It's a quenching of the thirst that produces a deeper desire. A deeper desire to follow the Lord. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He is the true water that replaces the Jewish ritual of water. That ritual is no longer needed. Now, remember what I said. He just is leading us out of the desert where we have water constantly now. Constantly. All believers now, now find life-giving refreshment in Jesus. And you know what the only requirement is? To come to him. If anyone is thirsty... Let them come to me and drink. Are you moving toward Jesus? Are you? Then you have the light ceremony. Now, every day in the candle, I mean, every day in the temple, the candles were lit in the court of the women, and uh, they were designed to overlook the city of Jerusalem because the idea was that we would, uh, we would be a light on the city of the hill, reflecting the light of, of God to the world, the one true God. This time they would sing the Psalms 120 to 134, what we call the Psalms of Ascent. When they would gather at the temple, the whole nation would sing these together. The men would dance uh, under the light. Uh, later rabbis tell us that uh, they danced 24 hours a day sometimes. The music went around, around the clock 24 hours a day. They were dancing and singing to their heart's content. Okay, now the light was designed to commemorate or help us remember the pillar of fire out of Exodus 13. Remember the pillar of fire? God never left the nation. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. That's the key, is presence. God is always present. 
That's what that pillar of light symbolized, his presence. So they added this to the festival, the pillar of the light, to remember that God's always present. Remember in the ancient world, the gods were dead. They thought, did everything they could to figure out what the gods thought, to appease them. And our God said, I won't leave you alone. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what that light memorized, uh, symbolized. So Jesus' challenge is that he is the true light. Listen to John 18, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness again, but will have the light of life. Light becomes metaphor for the coming Messiah. What does he say at the beginning of John? Light came into the world and shined on those living in darkness. Who's that? That's us, the Gentiles. They're in the desert, and that's what the Jewish festival celebrated. Jesus leads us out of the desert. He is the light, which means we, have, we can see now, and we have his presence with us, and he is the true water, which means we no longer have to worry. He takes care of all of our needs. That's the heart of it. All right. What does it have to do with us? It doesn't end there. He just is now describing two of our key roles as the community of faith. As representatives of Christ, we now represent water and light to the blind and thirsty community. You know as well as I do that we are surrounded by people looking for what they cannot find. And they're trying everything in their power to, to find it, aren't they? Fulfill it. And they're missing it. We have the words of life. To use the language of Peter, we have the words of life. They're, they are so hungry and thirsty, and they cannot find the true source of fulfillment. But we know it. We found it in the fountain of youth. We found it. Remember, we are the only means by which God uses to display his glory to this lost and broken county. There's no plane flying overhead with a banner about God's glory. There's no flashing billboards anywhere. It's us. To God be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Galatians, I mean Ephesians 3. It's us. That's our responsibility. Not trying to make you feel guilty, but we're the largest Protestant church in the county. If we don't do it, who will? That's us. This means to us, the importance is that we are the means by which God fills the earth with his glory. When your friends connect with you, do they, do they discover light? The truth about their broken world where they can see finally and they experience the presence of the Lord in real ways? Do they discover water that quenches their thirst? The answer to their true thirst for fulfillment? Is that what your friends find? Strangers? Co-workers when they come to you? Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for um, being so generous with us and kind. Jesus, thank you for leading us out of the desert into the new creation so that we can, we can enjoy you, so that we can share this wonderful, fantastic good news with the world around us that is so controlled by darkness people looking for ways to fulfill that emptiness and they can't find it. Lord, we know how to find it. We know how to bring them to you. Help us, Lord, to be 
to be that kind of people. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. We had a lot of language in here about giving. Give cheerfully. Don't just put money in. Just pause and say thank you, God, for what made it possible to you for you to give. Thanks for taking care of our needs. As we uh, close our time by celebrating communion together, I'd like to first of all invite some of you to come up and prepare to service communion, the cup and the bread. And I'd uh, love to have some of you come up and pray as well during that time. You know, the, uh, the communion story is the story of Jesus fulfilling the Festival of Tabernacles. Because prior to that, from a spiritual perspective, we live in the desert. So just as they're in the desert for 40 years, and he leads them out into the promised land. The death of Christ is leading us out of the desert into the promised land. That's the whole story of communion. That's it. You know that story. You know it well. It was a little tiny glimpse of something in John, at the end of John, um, where water is so prevalent throughout the gospel. Do you remember what the soldier did when Jesus, uh, on his, after he died, stuck the spear in his side? What came out? Blood and water. Most scholars, and I agree, I believe this, thinks that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, the water flowing out at his death. That means that he is the end of the desert. You are now part of the new creation, Paul tells us. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're part of the new creation. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for each of you. Remember me. I remember, do remember me. That's what the bread symbolizes. When somebody, when you come forward, someone will say, it's the body of Christ given for you. After supper, he took the cup. This cup represents a new covenant, the sending of the Spirit, a new covenant in my blood. That's what his sacrifice brought. It's entirely a brand new day, the new covenant. Remember me. That's what he says, remember me. So when you come forward, somebody will say, it's the blood of Christ shed for you. It's a new day. Out of the desert into the new creation. Father, thank you for sending your son so we can enjoy him and we can enjoy being part of the new creation. In his name we pray, amen. Come and enjoy communion.
many years ago, uh, when my first wife was dying, we used to pray for Nancy. And Nancy and I worked together, and I had the privilege of sharing Christ with her. So Judy and I used to pray for her. And then Judy went to be with the Lord, and I kept sharing. And Nancy came to the Lord, and we fell in love and got married. And we got married 31 years ago. And she asked me a question I've never forgotten. It was just a very haunting question. It still haunts my soul. When, she, when I shared Christ with her, she asked me, how come you're the first person to do this? She could think of a dozen friends who were Christians in her life. How come they didn't have the courage to tell me? I never forgot it. I'm not trying to guilt you. That's not the goal. But we have the words of life. And so the Festival of Tabernacles is the movement out of the desert into the new creation. And so what keeps you from sharing Christ with people? What is it? I don't know the answer. Only you know. Since that time, I've been asked that question many times in 30 years because I love sharing Christ. I do. And I've had many people over the years ask me, how come you're the first? So what's keeping you from doing that? Just pause and think about that as you go about your week. We know the Savior. You have a Savior whose name is Jesus. Have a great week. Go in peace.